The Christian in the Campus is a podcast of the Rebels for Christ Campus Ministry. The college campus is a world of competing stories vying for students' attention and allegiance. The goal of this podcast is to orient students towards Christ in this brave new world so that we can bring about a revolution of redemption on the University of Mississippi and Northwest Community College campuses. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden there was a tree of, of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river wa- a river water in the garden flowed from Eden. The angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruits every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and the servants will serve him. Hello. Hello. All right. When I say hello, say hello back to me. Por favor. Hello. Hello. Everyone, boo Ben Waycaster. Boo! That was great. All right, so, um, as uh, we all know, uh, I think this is, by the way, this is the first Wednesday I can't point to my shirt and say, our theme this year is the good news, because I'm not wearing that shirt. Um, But, I know, poor you, I still did it anyways. Um, So, uh, our theme this year is the good news. Uh, We have been walking and journeying through the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is Peter's accounts of Jesus that he then passed along to his friend, Mark. Um, But when Jesus came onto the scene and began his ministry, um, waiting is really what kind of defined the culture that he uh, inhabited and was speaking into. Um, And I think uh, the idea of waiting is something that's pretty difficult for us to wrap our minds around. I think it's difficult for us to grasp. Uh, We don't do much of it in our lives, do we? Uh, We have, uh, you know, fast food. Uh, We have drive-thrus. We have Kroger pickup. Uh, If you want to use Instacart, Kelsey's your man, right? Uh, we have social media, right, which just has this instantaneous nature, right? We can keep up with people um, on an instant, instantaneous level. Um, texting and Snapchat, you can communicate. I mean, just like that now, right? I mean, back in the olden days, you know, ship letters across the country or even across the sea. Um, uh, and even, uh, you know, just like Marybeth and I are, are now watching The Great British bake, Baking Show, and if you don't watch it, you are, I don't know, you're not human. Um, and we're watching The Great British Baking Show, and it's coming on Netflix, and we have to wait one week in between each episode. And, like, it is like, that is, like, it's creating cognitive dissonance in my mind. I'm just so used to just being able to binge watch whatever show I want, right? And so this idea of waiting is something that is, is really difficult to us for us to wrap our heads around. But if you were a Jew... In A.D. 30, when Jesus began his ministry, you had spent your whole life waiting for one thing and one thing only, and that was the kingdom of God. The time when God would set everything right. The time when God would reestablish his rule amongst his people. The time when he would reverse sin's curse on his originally good but now broken creation. In other words, this would be the time. The thing that you hope for, the kingdom of God, would be the time when God would finally get what he wants for the world, but he would get he would get what he wants for me and you, when his, his will and the reality of the way things are would just be synonymous rather than different things. 
the kingdom of God, when, when justice would be done, when mercy would be shown, and when we would finally walk with God, humbly, as he intended from the beginning. By the way, there, there's two times in the, the biblical narrative that this happens. Really three. One is Jesus. And Jesus, he's, he's bringing the kingdom of God, but well, one is the Garden of Eden, as we read in Genesis 2. It's when God got what he wanted. He created it, and it was very good. But you see at the end, right, I don't know if you picked up on this, and you should have, in Revelation 22, that was imagery of what? What was that imagery of? The garden. It was imagery of Genesis chapter 2. That's the kingdom of God. That's what God wants. That's what God is going to get in the end. But here's the thing, right? That's what you're waiting for if you were a Jew when Jesus began his ministry. But it wasn't just that you would spend your whole life waiting for this thing. It's that your parents spent their whole life waiting for this thing. And their parents spent their whole life waiting for this thing. And their parents spent their whole life waiting for this thing. And you can go on and on and on for 900 years of Israelite history, of them hoping for this one thing. It stretches all the way back to when Solomon was king. After Solomon, which is King David's son, was king, everything basically went to crap for the Israelites. And they'd all been hoping that one day that would be restored. I mean, 900 years is, is, is a time that we cannot really wrap our heads around. And so just to maybe put in a little bit more of a, a manageable context for us to understand, um, for the for the by the time Jesus had come on the scene for about 300 years, really more than 300 years, Israel had been under Greco-Roman rule. They were being oppressed by Greece and Rome, right? This all actually begins with Alexander the Great. And I think this puts it into context for us because America is how many years old? Anyone want to do some quick math? Roughly 250. Yes, 245 years. For longer, 15 more years, at least 50 years longer than how, we, how long we've been a country. The Jewish people's hope was that one day there would be a Messiah. And he would come in, and he would overthrow the Romans, and he would restore Israel as a nation state. More time than we've been a country, that was their hope. And you can imagine, right? And so you can imagine, right, when Jesus comes on the scene in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, saying, The time has come. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. And you can imagine when he comes on the scene saying that, they're flipping their lid, right? It's finally happening. And as they hoped, year after year, century after century, generation after generation, from trading one oppressor for another oppressor, you can imagine they had cultivated some, a set of expectations of what this was going to look like, right? I mean, if you dream about something, if you hope for something for a long time, you begin to cultivate a certain set of expectations about what that's going to look like. If you've ever been on vacation and you're excited about it, you've been waiting for it for a long time, right? You, 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 you start planning for it, right? Things that you wait for, you also plan for. So they had plans, right? They had certain expectations about what, maybe that's just me because I'm really, you know, kind of uh, uptight. But I think that's true of most everyone. Um, and, and so they had these certain expectations, and there were four in particular. And by the way, right, this is, these are their expectations of how God works in the world. And by the way, I think we share these four expectations with them. We 
along with the Israelites, think that God works in these four ways as he works in the world. The first is that God works impressively. They thought that a Messiah was going to come in and lead this massive revolt. It would be something that you could not miss. Right? I mean, it would be something that, that would make it into the history books, no questions asked. It would be extraordinary. It would be cataclysmic. It would be unique. It would not happen through ordinary means. So that's the first expectation. It would be impressive. The second expectation, man, this was going to be swift. It was going to happen all at once. The way their worldview worked is that they lived in an age that was called this present age, or as Paul puts it, this present age of darkness, right? This age that is defined by sin and the curse. And when the Messiah came and the kingdom of God was restored, everything would be set right. It would end the world as we know it. It would end this present age as we know it. And it would set up a new age, the age to come, an age that is marked no longer by sin and death and the curse, but by peace and justice and mercy. So it would be impressive. It would be swift. And here's the thing. It would also be on behalf of the Israelites. The Messiah would come in and God would be with and for Israel in a way that he had not been previously. And in that way, he would also not just be with and for the Israelites, but he would be against their enemies. He would be against their oppressors. He would support his chosen people and he would oppose the people who opposed them. God would come in and fix their problems. And um, the fourth one is this. All of this would happen. This impressive and swift action of God on behalf of the Israelites, all of this would happen in response to their own works. They thought that they could actually make this happen. And we've talked about this one before. Ben Waycaster's actually talked about this one pretty recently. The leaders of the day interpreted Scripture in such a way that they thought that if they had kept the Torah perfectly, if they kept the rules that God had laid out for them in the covenant, that if they did that perfectly, then God would act in this way, that he would bring about this impressive and swift action upon their behalf. He would overthrow Rome. If they, if they lived the Torah out perfectly, he would overthrow Rome and restore them as a nation, as in the days of King Solomon. And if you think about it, right, if the kingdom of God and sin can't coexist, well then, well, we have to be perfect to usher into the kingdom of God. Right? Do you, do you see the narrative that they were living in? If you have your Bibles, I encourage you, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 26 through 32. And here, four chapters after Jesus began preaching, the kingdom of God is drawn near. We finally get to hear Jesus say, this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. It's going to be the first and only time he does this in Mark. He's going to talk directly about the kingdom of God. This thing that he preaches about over and over again. We're finally going to get to hear him say what it's like. If you were a Jew who was in the crowd, all right, and you had those four expectations, what do you think he would compare the kingdom of God to? What do you think he would say it would be like? The kingdom of David, right? And David was a warrior, all right? Yes, he conquered lots of people. What else? Someone said something? The gardens, yeah. So Garden of Eden, yes. Like that imagery is definitely at play for them. Because the prophets prophesied about that, by the way. Yeah. Political liberation, yes. I mean, and, it, and it's going to be like, how? How's it going to happen? 
What? Yeah, so like probably some swords, right? Anything else? This is great. You're in the crowd. What do you think Jesus is going to say next? The kingdom of God is like the promised land. Yeah, and how do they get the promised land? Joshua and the Israelites go in and they kill a lot of people. It's impressive. It's swift. And God opposes the Israelites' enemies. Let's pick up as we journey through the Gospel of Mark in verse 26 of chapter 4. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seeds on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain, first the stalk and then the head, and then the full kernel of the head. Thank you, Jesus, for telling us about agronomy and agriculture. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it, because the harvest has come. You're a Jew in the crowd, and you come in with these expectations. David, great warrior. Joshua, great warrior. And Jesus starts talking about agriculture. You probably have to be thinking, okay, maybe this guy is just a country bumpkin from Galilee and not the Messiah that he claims to be. He's talking about seeds, not swords. We came here for swords. And if you were a Jew in the crowd thinking that, it's only going to get worse for you. Because Jesus continues on in verse 30, he says again, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. And if you are a Jew at this point, you have moved from confusion to ticked off. Because there's very specific imagery that Jesus is using here. You are angry at him. The re- the when, when he talks about um, the branches that the birds can perch in its shade, he's referencing um, some passages from Daniel 4 and Ezekiel 31, in which Israel is this tree in which the nations of the earth find rest in its shade as birds. When Jesus says that, if you're a Jew in the crowd and you're mad that the Romans are still oppressing you and you've been waiting your whole life, and it's not just you, but the entirety of your ancestors have been waiting for your whole life for the kingdom of God to be restored and your oppressors to be overthrown. Jesus just said, and by the way, this is for Rome too. So, I don't know if y'all have seen uh, expectation versus reality memes. This is from Elise. Everyone, this is not my undoing. You can tell by the corgis. But I asked a groomer to shave a heart on my dog's butt. What I expected? What I got? Maybe this one. Do you all know what these are from? Right, this is, who, who's this? Batista, who plays who? Marvel, come on, Drex. And that, you know, you know what that's from? Tiger King, right? 
Which, by the way, this is like the most, I think this is the most accurate one. Burger on the menu versus burger in the bag, right? I mean, like, it is never, it never looks as good, right? What I look like in my mind, which I don't know if y'all ever done this, what I look like in this Target self-checkout camera, like, that's pretty, it's, it's not good lighting, right? The floor, it's not good lighting. And my personal favorite. This is Chris Evans, and this is a guy who thinks he looks like Chris Evans. And that's my perfect dog. And if you're a Jew and you were listening to Jesus at this time, you're, you're, you feel like you're living in one of these memes. Your expectations are not being met. The reality that Jesus is describing to you is not what you had thought. Right? You had certain expectations, man. When you hope for something, you plan for something. And they had certain expectations about what this was going to look like. And Jesus just comes in, and the first time he mentions the kingdom of God, he just blows every single one of them all up. And so tonight what I want us to do is I want us to walk through how Jesus blows up each and every one of these expectations. Um, and, and by the way, just to remind you, the Jews weren't the only ones with these expectations about how God works in the world. I think we share the same expectations. We think God works impressively. We think God works swiftly. We think God works on our behalf and against our opponents. And we think quite often we don't live in the narrative of grace. And we think that God only works in response to our own good works. So let's unpack this. Right? So expectation number one, God works impressively. Now we uh, don't tend to think that God is going to come in and lead some massive or impressive uh, revolt. I don't think we think that, but, I'm, you know, if you do, we'll talk later. Um, even though we don't think that exact thing, I think very much like the Israelites, when we think about how God would work in the world, when we think about how God would work in, in, in our life, or maybe a friend's life, we would, we would imagine him doing so impressively, right? We imagine him doing so impressively, right? Think about the way uh, that culture thinks about God. And a good test for this is, when is religion brought into movies or TV shows? Miracles sometimes, yeah, yeah, sometimes live some light. Often in medical shows, right? So often around surrounding death or a crisis. What else? What else would movies talk about God or religion? Sometimes to make fun of it. Sometimes to make fun of it, yeah. But if it's going to talk about it positively, it's going to be in like a very few settings. What, what would those settings be? We talk about death or a crisis. What else? A Christmas movie. A Christmas movie, right? We'll get there. What? Birth, yes. And what's the other one? Marriage. Marriage. But other than that, you will, you will probably never see religion show up in a movie or a TV show. Right? And what is common between all those things? They're big things, right? They're impressive things. They're immense things. They're things with weight. They're not ordinary, right? I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase at a funeral, but it's one of my least favorite phrases that's ever used. We have our faith for times like these. That's not the way of the kingdom of God. We don't just have our faith for times like these, such as death. We have our faith for every waking moment and every sleeping moment of our existence. One of you have heard of Christer Christians. So Christians who only show up to church on Christmas and Easter. But right, Christmas and Easter, those are big moments. They're immense. They're impressive. And so we show up. 
if you grew up in a youth group, one of the things that often happens in the narrative of a youth group or the life of the youth group is that you, you live from one spiritual high to the next, right? One youth group conference to the next. God's involved in those big moments, but other than that big conference, other than that big spiritual thing, you don't really know what to do with them. We think God is there for the big things, but not necessarily the small things. But right, the picture that Jesus painted in these parables is the exact opposite, right? The kingdom of God is not defined by a sword, but a seed, a mustard seed in particular, which is, by the way, the size of like a poppy seed, a poppy seed chicken casserole, or even smaller than the end of a ballpoint pen. You see, God isn't just involved with the impressive, he isn't just involved with the immense, but he's involved with the extremely mundane and extremely insignificant moments of our life. And I just want to point out a few things inside of that reality. The first is this. Spiritual formation, right? If you want to grow in Christ-likeness, if you want to get closer to God, spiritual formation does not happen with an ordinary commitment to extraordinary practices, but rather it happens through an extraordinary commitment to extremely ordinary means. Waking up every day and reciting the Lord's Prayer. Every day at lunch, saying to yourself the Jesus Creed, which is what we're talking about on Sunday nights. Coming to connect on Wednesday nights. Talking with a friend about God. How He's at work in your life. And how He might be at work in theirs. Ordinary. Mundane extremely insignificant. But what does the mustard seed grow into? The largest plant in the garden. Spiritual formation, growing in Christ-likeness, does not happen with an ordinary commitment to extraordinary means, but rather an extraordinary commitment to extremely ordinary, insignificant practices. The second thing that I think we have to see, and this is kind of like on the other side of the coin, of the same coin, is that you can miss it. Right? If it isn't impressive, if it, if it isn't amiss, uh, immense, then, and it's insignificant, then, then the kingdom of God is something that we can miss right amongst us. It can be right amongst us. I mean, think about the people who are sitting there with Jesus. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's the one bringing it, and everyone misses it. They kill him. Because he wasn't an impressive military figure, but an insignificant Galilean peasant. How often does the work of God in mine and your life go unappreciated because it isn't grand or glorious like we expect? Do you eat every day? Is that not God at work? Give us this day our daily bread. Do we not experience his forgiveness every waking and sleeping moment of our lives? Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Do you see how I want you to pray the Lord's Prayer every day? In that moment of encouragement you get from your friend, did you not recognize that that was the kingdom of God breaking in in your life? Your very presence tonight, do you not realize that this is the kingdom of God breaking in to the Ole Miss and Northwest Community College campuses? When people gather around the Word of God and the Spirit is present. Is that not the kingdom of God breaking in? Insignificant. There's not many of us here. We're not even close to the biggest group on campus. 
but maybe that's how God works. The second way um, that I think we need to kind of have a paradigm shift as we look at these parables is that God works swiftly. Right? God works swiftly. I think just like Israel, we think that because God is all good and God is all powerful, he isn't just going to, he's just going to come in and, and fix everything all at once. Right? Like God's just, you know, like if God is who he says he is, he should just come in and he should fix everything. How often do we picture God as nothing more than a uh, cosmic lifeguard or some sort of divine vending machine? We have a problem. Because God is all good and all powerful, he should come in and he should fix that immediately. And by the way, there are studies, if you want to talk to me after this, there are major sociological studies that prove this is actually how Americans think about God. Like, if, like when they did studies on what do Americans really think about God, the answer was that he's a cosmic lifeguard or some sort of divine vending machine. He jumps in off the, uh, he's basically just far off and distant and remote, but man, when we have a problem, he comes in and fixes it. That's how we view God. But again, right, the picture that Jesus is painting in these parables is the exact opposite of ours and Israel's expectations about how God works in the world. The kingdom of God is not a quick revolt, but a slow-growing seed. In fact, Jesus uh, walked us all the way through, like, and the stalk grows, and then the head grows, and then the kernel and the head grows. I mean, it is a slow process. I think there's a couple things that we need to reckon with then. Because of that. The first is this. Um, evil and the kingdom of God coexist in this present age. Right? The Israelites thought that when the kingdom of God came, evil would be completely done away with. But the kingdom of God is going to come in full. What we read in Revelation chapter 22, that's going to happen. The, the sin's curse will be totally reversed on God's originally good creation. All right, It's going to happen. But we live in this present age of darkness in which the kingdom of God is currently breaking in. So good and evil commingle right now. And so when bad things happen to you, or when you do bad things, that doesn't mean that God is still not on his throne. When bad things happen to you, even things that you cannot explain, that doesn't mean that God is not still on his throne throne. And the second thing comes alongside that. And that is that healing takes time. Healing takes time. When I look at the nitty gritty of campus life, when I, I know some of your stories, I'm always amazed. Some of you have faced real trauma in your lives. You've faced real hurt. You've faced real emotional and psychological pain. You've experienced real spiritual frustration. Real addiction. And I know it may not seem very hopeful to say, well, you know what? The kingdom of God's not swift, it's slow. Doesn't feel very helpful, alright? But I think there's a lot of good news in that. What you feel is exactly what Jesus is explaining is going to happen. And I think we can find a lot of rest in that reality. Closeness with God is not on the short side of suffering, but the far side of it. Let me read this quote from Tim Keller. 
Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, that suffering is overwhelming. All right, suffering's real. We live in this present evil age. Contra-Buddhism, that suffering is real. It's not fake. The trauma you've experienced actually happened. Contra-Karma, that suffering is often unfair. You didn't deserve it. Not necessarily. And contra-secularism, I struggled saying that, suffering is meaningful. There's a purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can possibly imagine. The kingdom of God is not swift, but it is slow. Healing takes time. Whatever trauma you've experienced in your life, there's no silver bullets for it. And that may not sound helpful, but I think it should. I think it should. The fact that Jesus would actually explain the world in this way, the fact that he understands and articulates exactly our experience, isn't that comforting? Isn't that in some way some very good news? Closeness to God is on the far side of suffering, but not the short. I should not have had a four-point lesson, and I apologize for that. Let me see if I can go through these next two quicker. Um, Exhortation three. Um, God works on my behalf, right? So just like Israel, um, we live in a very polarized society. For them, it was your posture towards Rome that dictated everything. You were either for Rome or you were against Rome. Think about the way we talked about tax collectors and the way they were hated. They were with Rome, they weren't totally against them, and therefore they were the enemy. They were hated. For us, there are an infinite number of lines that are drawn in the sand. Race, gender and sexuality, political parties, rural versus urban divides. We live in a culture that if you are for X, that must mean you are exactly for Y. Or, sorry, if you are for X, then you have to be against Y. Everything is black and white. There's no gray, there's no middle, and as we find our way into our polarized parties and groups, we court God onto our side. Or we slap his name onto things, and therefore, by the way, break the third commandment. But remember the imagery of the birds that are nesting in the shade of the branches. Jesus' Jewish audience. And we should too, should all pick up on what he's saying. The kingdom of God. God's work on your behalf is not just for you, but it's for your enemy. It's for your oppressor. It's also for Rome. By the way, put yourselves in the shoes of the people who were reading Mark's gospel. They were Roman Christians, and Peter had just been killed on an upside-down cross in Rome. Do you think that would hit a little different? The history of Israel is one of God calling them constantly, over and over again, to love their oppressors. Genesis chapter 12 
God begins Israel by calling Abraham, and he, he blesses him. It's like these, these verse after verse of just God blessing him. But then he says, by the way, all peoples on earth, all nations of earth will be blessed through you. Exodus chapter 9, this is immediately after God has saved the Israelites from Egypt. And then he says, by the way, you are going to be for me a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In other words, you are going to mediate my presence out into the world to all the different nations. And by the way, that includes whom? Your captors, Egypt. In Jeremiah chapter 29, as Israel is being taken into exile by Babylon, what does God say? He says, seek the prosperity the peace and prosperity of that city of which I, uh, to which I have carried you, and pray to the Lord for it. The people of God have always, from their very origin, have been a so that people. We are blessed to be a blessing, even to our oppressors. The kingdom of God is not a self-centered kingdom. God doesn't just work on my behalf. It is an other-oriented kingdom, even towards our oppressors. Think about the language from Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, which is the Sermon on the Mount. These are the Beatitudes, and one of them is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And I love that phrase, peacemakers. Peace isn't kept. Peace isn't the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of healthy conflict inside of a community. In other words, we are supposed to go into our extremely polarized world and be agents of reconciliation, agents of peace, agents of healthy conflict that helps bridges gaps between people who are hurting and suffering, and who have been tricked by the world into dividing themselves falsely into different groups. And by the way, this is just for free, but like, victimhood isn't, uh, isn't an excuse here, is it? Who's the victim in the story of Israel and the kingdom of God? It's Israel. And what are they still called to do? Go love Rome. A little bit further on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that, they may be, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Do you notice the parallel image there? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be called children of your Father in heaven. If we want that status, the calling is very clear. And so, your roommate, who bothers you, who has done things to hurt you, the person who has gossiped about you behind your back, the person in your class who annoys you, the person in your class who has a different political view than you do and talks about it all the time, the person who does not share your worldview. Go love them. Reconcile. Be peacemakers in a polarized world. For the kingdom of God is not self-centered but other-oriented. And the final one, is God works in response to my work. Right? The Jewish rabbis taught that the kingdom of God would come once the people of God got their act together. 
once they finally kept all the commandments in the Torah. Man, just to have a little sympathy for the Pharisees here, like, that's a good impulse, right? That's a good desire. They want to, to, to do right by God so that he would come in and bring the kingdom of God. That's a good thing. We want to do right. We want God to work in our midst. But Jesus comes in here when he tells these parables and he totally upends our assumptions. He totally upends our expectations. Think about that first parable again. A man scattered seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. The seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. It's out of his control. All by itself, the soil produces grain. See, so much, so often, I think me and you, we, we, we just like the Israelites, miss the currency with which God works in our world. We've missed the grand narrative of Scripture, right? God doesn't work in response to our work, but rather amidst our utter and complete helplessness. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this way. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we've gotten our crap together and come to him, obeying all of his commands, he then forgives us and pardons us. No. Yet while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. How often do we live in the reverse of this narrative, right? How often do we miss out on grace because we think we have entered into some sort of contractual or transactional relationship with God in which we have to manipulate him by doing all the right things so that then he will finally, oh, finally show us his favor. How often is that taught in our churches? How often is that ingrained itself into our brains and our hearts and has kept us from approaching God with all of our messiness and saying, Lord, take me as I am? How often does that happen? How often do we live in that narrative that, man, once I get my crap together, I can approach God rather than the truth, right? That God comes in to our messiness and our sin and our brokenness and he meets us right where he's at. And he says, let me bring healing into your life. In a minute, um, we're going to split up into groups to discuss uh, and, and pray over a question. Um, but let me just close out with this quick little challenge and uh, I think a word of comfort. I'll give you the comfort first. Right? It's what we just said. It's We get to come to God, right? The one who is bringing the kingdom. The one who is going to reverse sin's curse. The one who, who is going to restore all of the all of his broken creation back to its original goodness, right? We get to approach that, that being. We get to approach Yahweh just as we are. But also in that, because we don't live in this transactional and manipulative and contractual relationship with God, we also are surrendering total and complete control. The good news of grace is that we get to come as we are. The hard news of grace is that we have to surrender everything, right? Because at least if it was tra tra transactional, right? If I could manipulate God, at least I get to maintain some false sense of being in control. By the way, that's why it's so tempting to do that. 
That's why our culture lives in the narrative of perfection. Perfectionism. That's why we put pretty pictures on Instagram. But all it's going to do is lead to burnout. Tonight, um, what I want us to do, uh, if you want to get on your phone, I, I mean this, go, go and go to Instagram. Uh, if you follow us on Instagram, if you don't, by the way, it's at rfcms.org. I mean, sorry, at rfc underscore campus ministry. Um, and in the story, uh, there's a little summary of, of the, the kind of lesson of tonight, and it has this question. In what way, or in what ways do you need to change how you view God's work in your life?